people marvel at the uh, strength of mothers, you know, a mother who can uh, lift a, a car to save her, her baby. Uh, somebody who would marvel, though, at the lifting of a car is not really paying attention to all the things that mothers do all the time. All right, I mean, a car is nothing compared to the other things that women lift, that mothers lift uh, for their children. In fact, often we miss all kinds of things. We regularly miss all kinds of marvelous things that God is doing right there in, in the middle of us, right here among us. People are doing it all the time. Mothers taking care of their children. People going to work, being faithful in their work. People loving one another in the church, finding ways to serve one another without even being asked. God is at work among his people to love one another, for us to love one another, for us to love our families, for us to love our neighbors. He's doing that in all kinds of mundane ways that we miss, but the marvelous is right there in the middle of the mundane. That God is at work through small ways that God is working to build his people, to increase his people, to multiply his people. We miss all those marvelous things, but today I want us to focus on and see some things highlighted in the scriptures, the ways that God is working in in ways that are in in times where it doesn't look like extraordinary things are happening, it doesn't look like marvelous things are happening, and yet God is working in the middle of his people to multiply them, to build them, to save them. And I hope that in seeing this in the scriptures, your eyes will also be opened to see all the marvelous things that God is doing among people even now. Today we're going to start our study of Exodus. So it'll be in Exodus 1. Exodus 1. And what we'll see first is multiplication. Multiplication. See, multiplication. Look at Exodus 1. We'll read verses 1 through 14. That's what it says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them. With heavy burdens, they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of God work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." In verse 1, there's actually a, a little word, it's actually a little letter in Hebrew that goes untranslated. In some translations, it's translated as now, uh, but it's the word and. There's this little letter that you can, in the original languages, you can put at the beginning of a word, and it's just a way of moving the narrative along. The reason why I point that out is because really Exodus is the continuation of the story from Genesis. 
This is, this is, the, this is the, the next phase. In fact, you can think of the, the first five books of the Bible, which are called sometimes the Law or the Pentateuch. Uh, the first five books of the Bible as one big story. Genesis is like a prologue about the beginnings. Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers form one narrative. And then Deuteronomy is like an epilogue that goes back and reflects upon the story of, the, of what God has done with his people. So it's the continuation of Genesis. And you can see there in that first paragraph in verses 1 through 6, a connection to Genesis 46. It's the same, the same words are used there in Genesis 46. That's where God told Jacob, go down to Egypt. Go down to Egypt. Go, go live with Joseph. Joseph is there. Joseph will close your eyes when you die. Go down to Egypt, and there I am going to make your people into a great nation. And it records the same listing of the sons of Israel. It records their same number. They go down as 70. God began in the book of Genesis with just one man. One man who was very old. So old that he was as good as dead is what the Romans 4 says. His wife's womb was dead. Starts with one man and gives him a son, offspring. Says that one man, through your offspring, I will bless all nations. That promises, promise passes from, from Abraham to Isaac, who has two children, and from uh, Isaac to Jacob, who has 12 sons. And they go down as 70. And one of the things that I think is marvelous about the book of Numbers is that it numbers them and 600,000 plus men come out. God makes the people of God into a great nation. You see that in verse 7. There's another connection there in verse 70. You see the words there. He says, the, the, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It's actually one of those words means that they swarmed all over the land. I mean, uh, they, they were... Uh, the other, a couple of weeks ago, we were at a uh, baseball game, and there were the, the termites were swarming. That's how, the, that's how the Israelites were in the land of Egypt. They were multiplying so fast, and, and Moses, who is the, the author of, of the one who wrote down Exodus, he layers word upon word upon word upon word to say just how big, how, how great they are multiplying. He, in, in, in at least a, a, some sense... God is fulfilling through Israel, through the Israelites, what is called sometimes the creation mandate. You go all the way back to Genesis 1, it says, uh, God told Adam and Eve, told the first man, the first woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They were supposed to be God's image bearers in the world. They were supposed to take God's image all over the world to be God's representative in, representatives in the world. And so here God is doing that through the nation of Israel. Adam and Eve failed. But he's, he's re restarting things through the nation of Israel. They are supposed to be uh, what God will uh, eventually call a kingdom of priests. They are supposed to be God's representatives in the world to show God's character, to show God's wisdom, to, to declare God's salvation. God is increasing them. God is multiplying them. And this is not just in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the well-documented facts about the early centuries of Christianity is that one of the ways that it spread, one of the, one of the uh, major reasons why it spread was because people were raising their children, Christians were raising their children to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't use birth control. They didn't engage in the uh, abortion or infanticide that was common among the pagans. And the early Christians multiplied. They had many, many children, and they taught their children to follow the Lord. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, because we're reading Ephesians 6.1, that fathers are supposed to, to teach their children. Supposed to teach their children, uh, train them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we want to, we, we don't want to neglect seeing unbelievers or outsiders come to faith in Christ or see, uh, see whole, whole nations reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one of the ways that the, the kingdom of God, that the, the God's people are multiplying and increasing still today is by faithful parents raising their children to obey Jesus Christ. To obey all that Jesus has commanded. They're taking the great commission and they're taking the people, the, the unbelievers who are in their household, who happen to be sometimes very, very small, some small unbelievers, and they're teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. That's the way, one of the ways, one of the key ways that God is advancing his kingdom, that God is building his people through us. We ought not be uh, neglectful of that. In fact, if we see that, that God's people are, are suffering uh, from uh, declension of many kinds, we have to wonder why that is. might be because there was a link broken somewhere. We don't want to be that broken link. We want to pass on the faith to our children so that they know God and worship God and please God. Trust in Jesus Christ. Now then, you see there in verse 8, there's a new king in Egypt uh, who doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't remember who Joseph is. Joseph and all that generation died. And uh, this new king doesn't know who Joseph is. He doesn't appreciate who Joseph is. Joseph, uh, through Joseph, God saved people from many, many nations, including the Israelites and including the Egyptians. But this Pharaoh doesn't care. This king doesn't care. And he sees how the Israelites are increasing in number, and he comes up with a plan. This is his first level plan. He's going to enslave them, and he's going to work them so hard that they can't multiply like this anymore. And so he enslaves them. He puts them on these big work projects, might even take the men away from home for months at a time. Can't have children. I mean, slavery has never been a state in which Uh, The multiplication of life has been favorable. And yet, what happens? Says that the more they were oppressed, look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The more you press them. Again, this is not just something that happened in their time. There has been persecution in different places at different times that that have really, uh, in some ways, weakened the church. But by and large, Overall, globally, the more that Christians have been oppressed, the more God has multiplied them. People wonder, how can this be? It's because God is at work. God can make God's people multiply. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. He is building it. Ephesians 5, Jesus Christ laid down his life for the church. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his church. He will build his church. He will multiply his church. God does this. And notice this. The the story of Exodus is not Pharaoh versus Moses. It's not mainly Pharaoh versus the Israelites. It's mainly Pharaoh versus God. God's people are pro-life. Pharaoh is anti-life. He's pro-death. He has this pro-death campaign against God's people. And he fails. He is failing. You see in verses 13 and 14, he starts to try and ratchet it up, try and build it up, treat them even, the, the, the words again, the same way that, that Moses uh, layered up the words to say about how, how God's people were multiplying. 
Those same words, he's, he's laying them to say that they are, uh, Pharaoh is making God's people's, the, the lives of the Israelites hard and oppressed and burdensome and bitter. And still, they keep growing in strength. Still, they keep growing in number. If God is for us, who can be against us? No, no power, no king, not death, not life, no, nothing in existence can be against us if God is for us. If God is for his people, if he's shown his love for his people by sending his own son, will he not also give us all good things with him? We can trust God to keep his promises. He made promises to Jacob. He's keeping those promises. He's made promises to us. All those promises are yes in Jesus Christ. He's keeping those promises to us. So we've seen multiplication. Next we see midwives. Pick up in verse 15. Read through the end of the chapter. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom, uh, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the second stage in the king, Pharaoh's, in his pro-death campaign. And he he tries to engage the Hebrew midwives. He says to them, uh, When you see the child come out, I want you to see what sex it is, I want you to see if it's a son or a daughter, and then they could do this very quickly, very easily. They could kill it if it's a son. They could strangle it. They could, they could do, we might think of it as like a partial birth abortion. They would, they would try to, they would destroy the child. Well, these midwives, when this is happening, they let the children live. They let the sons live. You can, you can think about how this would work. I mean, it might take a long time for Pharaoh to even realize that his campaign is not working. So uh, back in those days, you know, little boys and little girls, they mainly wore similar looking outfits. And if you don't put pink, bow, pink bows in their hair, you might not even be able to tell whether they're, they're, they're girls or boys. So, so, so they can't tell. That, and then finally he realizes what's happening. And he says, why, why have you done this? Why aren't you doing what I told you to do? And they say, uh, well, the, 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 the Hebrew women are not like the, the, the Egyptian women. They're involved and they're, they're vigorous. Now, it may be that what, what had happened was that the midwives sort of tipped off the, the, the Hebrew mothers and said, hey, you, you call us when you give birth, but don't call us until after you give birth. Like, go ahead and give birth before we get there. And then the baby will live. We'll come and take care of you and we'll help you. Don't call us until the baby's already come. But look at what it says. They feared God more than Pharaoh. So can Pharaoh oppress? Yes. Can Pharaoh enslave? Yes. Can Pharaoh execute? Yes. 
Is Pharaoh as scary as God? No. No, he's not. Fear God. Fear God. To, to, to think about what the fear of God is, the fear of God is the thing that makes the difference. What you worship is what makes the difference in your life. So often in the New Testament, it, worship of God is compared with the world or with money. If you worship money, it's because money's what matters. Losing money, that's devastating, and getting money, that's, that's, the, that's the goal. That's all that matters. God, fearing God is, displeasing God is something you dreadfully don't want to do. And pleasing God is what you dearly devote your life to doing. They feared God and not Pharaoh. In response, God gave them families. Now evidently midwives didn't typically have families. Maybe it's because of the workload. Uh, maybe, maybe they became midwives because up until this point they could not have families of their own. But God gives them families. Their, their families are a blessing to them. God gives them uh, and, and makes them mothers. Children are a blessing from the Lord. This is something that God, God intends for, to, to be a blessing to us. Sometimes, uh, he, sometimes the chaos of, of having children and having a family, that, that can be very difficult. And you just, you lay down at night and you're like, got through another day. And, uh, and that, was, that was hard. They're a blessing from God. God intends to bless us through giving us children and giving us families. Also note this. The fact that they didn't have families when they did was also a good thing from God. If the midwives had had families of their own, then they couldn't have been midwives. And if they hadn't been midwives, then they wouldn't have been able to save hundreds of children's lives. God gives each one a a gift. He gives some the the gift of of being married and having children. He gives others the gift of of, uh, not being married, being unmarried, maybe not having children. So that those who are unmarried or don't have families yet can devote themselves to the Lord in a way that those who are married with children can't. God uses both gifts. He intends for you to use, to exercise all your gifts at whatever stage of life you're in or whatever assignment he has given you. Let us be content and cheerful wherever God has placed us. Let us be useful to the Lord, to seeking to please the Lord in whatever way he has ordained for us to please him. You also see there at the end, uh, things are going to get worse. But you see in verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Pharaoh is, is coming against God. God is pro-life. Pharaoh is pro-death. The people of God keep getting stronger. Also, notice one more thing. What's Pharaoh's name? It's not mentioned anywhere in the book of Exodus. You know, we, archaeologists and historians can try and come up with which Pharaoh it was, but really, we don't, we're not even sure, even from historical records or archaeology, who it was. You don't know, king, you don't know the king's name. You know whose names you do know? Shifra and Pua. You know, there are going to be a lot of great men in this world who are going to be shut out of the kingdom of God and their names are going to be forgotten. There's going to be a lot of 
heroic women, heroic mothers, heroic midwives, heroic servants who are not recognized in this world, who are going to be heroes in the kingdom of God. You know what it means to fear God? You know, the, the world does not value this kind of work the way that we hopefully do. Certainly doesn't value it the way that, the way that God does. Doesn't value motherhood the way that God does. You know what it means to fear God and not the world? It means you don't care about what the world thinks. It means that you care about being faithful in what God has given you to do. In the way that he has ordained you to do it. It's being a father, being a mother, being a worker, being married, being unmarried. Whatever God has given you to do, do it with all your heart. Work for the Lord. Work, work for the reward that can only come from God. That's what matters. Fearing God, serving God, pleasing God. Well, next we, we've seen uh, multiplication. We've seen midwives. Next we see mothers. Uh, move into chapter 2. Read verses 1 through 10. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him uh, no longer, she took, him, uh, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for, for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. You see at the end of chapter 1 uh, that Pharaoh is starting up his, his third phase of his campaign, the uh, enslaving God's people, enslaving Israel wasn't enough, uh, killing them while, right as they came out of the womb, killing the, the boys uh, right as they came out of the womb. That didn't work. And so now he says, Let, let's throw them all into the Nile River. Uh, there was a God who was associated with the River Nile. And so let's, let's throw them in there and let the God of the Nile decide. Let, let's make a sacrifice to the God of the Nile. Let's throw them in there. He wants to get rid of the boys. Boys make good slaves. They also make good warriors. So he's trying to prevent some kind of uprising. So let's kill the boys. There's a mother who has a boy. She looks at him, sees that he's a fine child. Literally, it is uh, the word for good. She looked at him and saw that he was good. And so she makes for him a little basket. Actually, the word there is the same Hebrew word, only, only used in the Bible in the whole Hebrew Bible, in Genesis 6 through 9 and here. It's the word for ark. The, the mom put him in a little ark basket. And then the same way that Noah uh, covered it with pitch and, and, and bitumen to make it waterproof, she does the same thing. And God is going to, the same way that God saved Noah through the waters, so God is going to save Moses through the waters. The same way that God is going to save God's people through the Red Sea, through the waters. God, God 
the, these big waters that are threatening destruction. They're, they're, like, they're like Egypt. They're, they're like Pharaoh. They're like the king here. They're, they're threatening destruction, threatening to destroy. And yet God is, God is saving through the waters of judgment, through the waters of destruction. He's saving his people. When she puts the, the baby in the little ark basket and puts him in the Nile, and maybe she can, she can go, she's uh, in, in one way sort of literally carrying out what, what Pharaoh had said, and yet she can go back and check on the child. Uh, maybe the, uh, the reeds and the basket would muffle his crying. She can go back and nurse him. She can, she can try to keep him, uh, keep him alive and, and try and find some way to, to save him. Who knows, there may have been a lot of mothers in Israel who were doing the same thing to try and save their babies. But then the worst thing that could happen, happened. That's the way that you should be reading it. Somebody, an Egyptian, comes down to bathe in the Nile. And not only is she an Egyptian, she's from Pharaoh's household. You know what she's going to do with that baby when she finds it? She's going to toss it in the Nile. So she comes down to bathe. And uh, she, she sees the basket. Maybe, maybe she hears the crying. She sends one of her servants over to get it. And she opens it up. And this is God at work. She pities the child. She has mercy or compassion on the child. Now, mom has stationed sister next there, and she's a clever girl. And she says, uh, she runs up and says, do you want me to go and find a Hebrew woman to nurse her for you? And she's like, go. And she goes and gets mom and brings mom to Pharaoh's daughter. And for probably three or four years, she's going to nurse this baby and get paid for it. If, I know a lot of moms would probably appreciate that, but that's not the way it works normally. You're going to nurse the baby and get paid for it. Pharaoh is against God. And God cannot be stopped. Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because he was drawn out of the water. God brings him through the waters of judgment. God brings him through the waters of destruction. God saves him from the very worst circumstances, seemingly, to the safest place that on earth you could imagine, in Pharaoh's household. That's where Moses grows up. God, God, prepares, God prepares this man for, for, to, to lead his people out of slavery. And God is also, look, look here, God is advancing his kingdom. He's saving his people through mothers. This is not, this is not new. This is not unusual. It's through Eve. It's through Hannah. It's through Mary. It's through Eunice. It's through, it's through, uh, it's through Moses' mom. It's through all these women. It's through Ruth. God uses mothers to bring saviors, to bring Christians, to bring believers, to bring, to make faithful men. God uses mothers and God still uses mothers. Your, your work, your work is valued by God. God, God uses mothers to save the world. Salvation came through a mother, the offspring of the woman. He said, you'll be saved through 
childbearing. 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2. That is, God has a, has a plan for families and for mothers to raise children who will be faithful to the Lord, who will follow Jesus Christ. And so, carry on. All right, next we see misunderstanding. Multiplication, midwives, mothers, and misunderstanding. Verses 11 through uh, 22. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid them, hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, uh, to, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call, uh, call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with a man, and he gave Moses his, his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses grows up. You can see that Moses identifies not with the Egyptians, but with the Israelites. Hebrews 11 calls attention to this and says that, that Moses preferred the shame of being with God's people rather than the pleasures of sin. He could have had a very easy life. He said, I care more about being identified with God and his people than being identified with the world, than with sin. You know, Jesus says, Luke 14, that you need to hate your father and your mother. Compared to, compared to the love that you should have for Jesus Christ, compared to your devotion to Jesus Christ, you hate father and mother and brother and sister and even your own life. So honor your father and mother, love your mother, treat your mother right. But compared to Jesus, hate your mother. And Jesus says, Mark 10, the one who gives up father or mother or wife or children in this life gains fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and lands and eternal life. Don't count this world as what you're living for. Identify with Jesus Christ. Identify with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Identify with the people of Jesus Christ. Identify with Jesus Join with him. Now Moses uh, identifies with his own people. He sees, a, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He goes out. It looks like there's some premeditation on Moses' part. He looks this way. He looks that. He makes sure he's not going to be seen. And then he, he murders the Egyptian. He's, he's going to, he, he has this, I suppose you could think of it as the, the way that God naturally made him, this savior impulse. 
to go and, to go and save his people. But it, obviously, the way this turns out is not the way that it's supposed to be. Uh, he goes the next day, and he sees two Hebrews uh, fighting with one another. He goes and tries to break them up. One of them says, who made you a leader and a judge over us? Ironically, God is the one who's going to make Moses the leader and the judge of, of Israel. But Moses recognized from that, that that the news is out. And so he has to run. Uh, Moses is, goes out to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. He goes out, he, he makes his way to Midian. He sits down by a well, and he still has that savior impulse. And so he sees a flock of daughters with a flock of sheep, and he sees them come. And he, he, he sees that how the, the, the male shepherds, the, the, the toxic masculinity of the day, how they are, are there uh, uh, keeping the, the shepherdesses from watering their sheep. And then Moses, the right kind of man, steps in and makes it where they can water their sheep. And he waters their sheep for them. And uh, they go back home. Dad says, how'd you get back so quick? They said, there was a man who uh, ran off all the bad shepherds and, uh, and watered our flocks for us. And he's like, why didn't you ask this guy to dinner? And so he does eventually come to dinner. And he, he, does, he marries Zipporah, uh, the daughter of Ruel, the Midianite priest. And he has a son, uh, but he names his son Gershom, which means sojourner or foreigner. Or exile. He's not an Egyptian. He's not an Israelite. He's just wandering out in the wilderness. It's no wonder, based on the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and here at Moses, it's no wonder that Peter calls Christians sojourners and exiles in this world. This world is not our home. Jacob was living in Egypt. Moses living in Midian. Abraham never owned any land except for one little burial plot. This world is not our home. Our home is with the Lord. Our home is where God is. Our home is in a promised land beyond the promised land that they thought of. We are living for a city whose foundations cannot be shaken. Living for a land to come that Jesus Christ will bring. The last thing, we'll just look at three verses, see God's mercy. Verse 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You know, remember that all this is happening over a span of 400 years. 400 years of, not, of looking like not a lot of hap- is happening. Probably the, the multiplication is not noticeable to anybody except for Pharaoh and the other people who are afraid of it. Nobody, nobody gives a plaque to Shifra and Pua. Uh, nobody's, nobody's saying anything uh, really big about about Moses' mom or Pharaoh's daughter. God is doing all this very quietly. God is, God is working and multiplying and saving and protecting. The most powerful man in the, in the world is trying to destroy this people. And he's not more powerful than God. God sees them and he sees their groaning. And then they cried out to him. You know, God knows what we need before we ask. 
but God likes to be asked. God, God wants us to demonstrate our dependence upon him by asking, by crying out to him. Not depending on our own, not depending on our own abilities, not depending on our own strength to save us, by crying out to God. Hopefully, it won't take 400 years for you to learn that you can't save yourself. You'll learn before then that you have to trust God. You have to cry out to God. That your problems, you can't solve them on your own. You can't make it through this life on your own. You cry out to God. God sees. God knows. He knows what you need even before you ask. But you do not have because you do not ask. Ask. God tells us to ask. He sees, he remembers his covenant. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a promise to to Abraham back in in Genesis 12. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. Genesis 15, he says, I'm going to make your your offspring like the the stars in the sky. He says, your your people are going to go down into slavery for 400 years. But then I'm going to bring them out with great riches. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defeat and bring judgment on that people. God keeps his promises. God keeps his covenant. God made a promise. A com- promise that he's kept through Jesus Christ. It's ours. The last thing you see there is that God knew. It doesn't mean that God didn't know before. The idea of knowing here is not just the knowing of the bare facts. It's the way a, a husband knows his wife or the way a mother knows her children. It's a loving knowledge. You know, it's a glorious thing to know God. It is the supreme joy of humanity, of those who have been saved, to know God. You know what's more important than knowing God? Being known by God. We love because he first loved us. We know him because he knew us. He sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Moses, Moses is rejected by his people. Jesus Christ was rejected by his people. The world world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He's ready to know us as his children if we will believe in Jesus Christ. If we'll believe in Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. If we'll believe in who Jesus is for us. God sent many prophets to his people. Eventually he sent his son. Then his son was crucified. But if we'll believe, we'll be saved. And we'll know God's mercy forever and ever. We'll know eternal life. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, please uh, keep us from uh, the despising of small days and uh, small acts, things that are not noted, people who are not noted. Keep us from, from thinking like the world thinks, from judging by appearances. Grant that we would think the way that you think that our thoughts would be your thoughts, that we would begin to have the mind of Christ, the the mind of humility and service. A mind that is ready to 
to be obscure and small so that we might receive a reward from you. Grant that you would keep working through your people today. That you would keep multiplying your people. That the more, uh, the more difficult it becomes to be a Christian, the more you'll multiply your people. That you'll keep working through us to, to multiply, to, to, to be wise as we speak to outsiders. That you would uh, save many who are just like we were once. That you'll save our children. That generation after generation will praise your name because of our faithfulness in this generation. Please grant that we would be faithful, that we would honor your name, we would honor the name of Jesus Christ, that we would believe in him. In his name we pray, amen.